you are told you won't see the sunrise. You are told you won't live throughout the night. Time for some grit. Let's hear from Ron Stoller next. This is a dash of grit. Recipes for success from courageous leaders who overcome challenges and build great things. Now, podcasting from Spire to leaders in local communities like yours, here is Brian Leflock. And let's get cooking. I am really excited about this show today because I have a, a place in my heart for people who do things for other people and people who give up themselves, put themselves in harm's way, put themselves in society's way to make a difference for others. I'm speaking specifically of law enforcement and first responders. I'm also speaking specifically about our guest today on Dash of Grid. I'd like to introduce you to a, a very special person doing great things at the Medina County Juvenile Detention Center uh, and has done many things over his career as an 18-year veteran of the Medina Police Department. You are going to be thankful that you stayed around and listened to the story uh, with Ron Stoller. Ron, welcome to A Dash of Grid. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate that. And thank you for your kind words. Well, I, it, you, we don't get to say it enough. And, and, and too often, you know, at, at the fast food restaurant, we, we say, boy, I ought to say something to that, that young man over there, that military person or that law enforcement or I ought to buy, buy coffee. And sometimes we do. Um, but never uh, do you folks get the, the uh, credit or recognition that you deserve. I think it's impossible to. You just you put yourself out there way too much. Uh, that could be. Um, but I think most of us are OK with that as well, because yeah. uh, we love what we do. Yeah, I, I, I believe that too. And so, Ron, I'd, I'd like, I, I want to get to your story because I, I know that the grit that you've showed over the years makes it possible to impact lives today like you probably didn't even see yourself being able to impact lives and your team. And so those lives are of young people, students, uh, people in the juvenile detention center who, well, we'll talk about what they could get into and what their lives could look like, but maybe aren't now. And it's thanks to the grit that, that you've shown over time and your team. But if you can tell me a little bit about your program and the things that are going well and, and success with your program at the detention center, what's working really well? Let's brag about that a little bit because that matters. The difference you're making to kids and young people today. Let's talk about that before we get into your story of grit. Uh, okay, sure. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, hopefully we have, uh, many things that are uh, going well, but uh, one of the first things that comes to mind is, uh, and this is nothing profound, uh, but it's just the way we work with our kids to help get them on the right track. That's the bottom line. Uh, I have a philosophy of, I have no interest in simply just housing kids. Um, about anybody could do that. Since they're here, why would we not do everything we can reasonably do to help them uh, and, in many cases, uh, their families get on the right track, get their lives turned around? Uh, so we do a number of different things, but uh, one, of, uh, one of them, again, not profound, we treat them with respect, dignity. We listen to them, uh, their stories. We encourage them. We have uh, services both uh, through us after they leave us as well as more so our juvenile court. And it's not just, we're not going to talk bad about anybody, mm -hmm. but you've, I've talked to you about this a little bit before. You feel like you're making an effort that maybe not everyone is making, that when you have this time with these folks, 
that you can impact them in order to make them better contributors to society in the future. And that's, it was surprising to me that that's just not the way it is everywhere. In some places, it's just a, a, a holding cell, right? Uh, sadly, that's accurate in probably too many cases. Uh, yeah, we, the old adage, the youth of our future also happens to be absolutely true. Yeah. They are. So again, why would we not try to help them? They're already in our communities. They're going to continue to grow, be in our communities and beyond. Uh, I don't want to be at a park or a store somewhere and have a problem with someone that we spent absolutely no time trying to improve. I would rather have a conversation with folks that uh, they come up, they're cordial, they're personable. Uh, you say hi. Uh, they might thank you, uh, which still happens to me from people I used to arrest uh, when I was on the police department, actually. It just happened Sunday, two days ago. Yeah. Somebody came up to you and said, thank you for impacting my life. You might not even remember me, but you you made this difference Correct. for me. Correct. I, I, I did remember him. I had arrested him several times, as it, as it turns <laughs> out, but uh, I always liked him. We always had a good relationship. Yeah. Tough love is what that's that's called, and, and you wouldn't just let them go. I'm interested. This is kind of a gritty question, but it's not about you so much. The program, since you're doing it differently than other people, do you get? Have you gotten some pushback that you know? Let's not go all the way out here. These are they don't deserve all of our efforts. Thing. Let's just status quo. Does that ever happen? It's happened a couple of times that I'm aware of. Uh, I'm guessing that we've had people think it uh, and not necessarily verbalize it, but uh, uh, the superintendent of another juvenile detention center here in Ohio, uh, because we send out a monthly newsletter about what's going on in our building uh, and he receives it, um, more than 500 people I think received that. He told me last year sometime uh, to stop sending him jokingly. He said, please stop sending me your newsletter. You make us look just incompetent because we don't do half the stuff you do there. Yeah. It was encouraging. Yeah. Encouraging and, and, and more of opportunity of, of being able to impact others. How long have you been at the detention center? Uh, it'll be 16 years here in December. And how long did it take you in that 16 years to realize that the, the way of the way everyone does it, this storage cell biding our time mentality has to go away. How long did that take you to kind of turn that around a little bit? Uh, well, I'm probably embarrassed to admit it took me a few years, actually. You know, I didn't have a background at all in corrections or detention, especially with juveniles. And uh, I, when I started here, I thought, well, okay, this, this is what corrections is. It's how it's done. Uh, but as time went on, I just kept thinking, I think we can do better. Yeah. Um, and so uh, over time, uh, just started trying to make things happen. So let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about grit when when things weren't uh, going as well because you've transformed. And I, and I give you credit and your team credit for transforming the way this is done at the Juvenile Detention Center at Medina. And so let's talk about you. Let's talk about your history. Let's talk about grit that uh, that through tough times has brought you to this position to be able to make this impact. Can you share your story a little bit with us? Because I know it is uh, encouraging and, and should energize people to get up and make a difference. I'll do my best here. I know you will. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. So... Uh... I was uh, a sergeant with the Medina Police Department. I was on the SWAT team and uh, did a lot of work out in the community. Uh, 
had a, I was in charge of several officers who, uh, whose assignments were to reduce crime in the highest crime areas of the city. And as it turns out, uh, we were very successful. And uh, so during my 14th year, uh, my family and I were returning from a family vacation. So I was off duty, of course, and uh, we were hit head on uh, by a drunk driver going the wrong way on an interstate in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I probably don't have time to get into the details of how we were not able to avoid this car coming at us, but it was not uh, avoidable. And uh, my wife is an excellent driver. She was driving, actually. And if she couldn't avoid it, nobody could. Uh, so it happened. And uh, I uh, ended up with uh, some a, a lot of injuries, uh, life-threatening injuries, and uh, was told that I would probably not survive through the night. But uh, obviously, and thankfully, I did. By the grace of God, I'm here today. So that changed things uh, very quickly for me. And Ron, you were a, 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 an 18-year veteran of the police force, and all of a sudden, there's a wall. And, and you have to make some choices. So you recover, uh, and we won't talk about the recovery um, unless you would like to, but I'm sure that wasn't easy, especially from a life-threatening, you couldn't make it through the night. Um, when, when you felt like you could, that you were recovered, what happens to a 18-year police veteran when they realize that that, that story is, is closed? Well, Okay, let me interject here. Okay. When the doctor told me that he did not expect I would live uh, to see the sunrise. Um, oh, he I, told you? So you you, you were, yeah. oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, yes, he did. Uh, I mean, he did it very professionally. Uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, but I told myself, um, well, I'm going to do everything I possibly can which was nothing other than mental due to my injuries. I couldn't do anything physically. Um, But I told myself, I am not gonna allow myself to fall asleep. I am going to stay awake somehow one way or another to see the sunrise. And uh, again, that happened because we know know that because I'm here today. Um, And then that next afternoon, a nurse came into my room and she said, the ER doctor from the night before that had taken care of me had called in that afternoon because he was not going to be on duty that night and asked her how long I had survived. And she said, he's still with us. And the doctor said, are you sure? No one survives those types of injuries. And she said, well, I'm quite sure. Uh, you know, he's, he's got a room here. Um, so that when she shared that with me, that I think is when it really hit me that, okay, wow. Yeah. The doctor did say he might not live through the night, but for him to call in and pose the question the way he did, how long did I live? Essentially. Uh, I thought, okay, this is pretty bad. Um, I didn't realize how bad it was. Uh, still, even at that time, I thought I'd be off work for a couple of weeks. That's how ignorant I was. Um, As it turned out, I was off work for 11 months with surgeries and tests and physical therapy and all those types of things uh, before I was cleared to go back to work. 
uh, when I was finally cleared to go back to work, it was only for light duty. Uh, I was, I could not, I had physical limitations and chronic pain and I couldn't do things that a police officer, some things that a police officer has to do, like run after people when they decide they're going to run from you um, or uh, shoot shotguns, uh, things like that. Uh, and other, and just fight with people when they resist arrest. Right. So um, when I finally got cleared, I went back to work, uh, but I was uh, put in charge of our dispatch center. Uh, the person who had been in charge of it during that 11 months I was off had retired. And uh, now Mayor Dennis Hanwell, then Chief Dennis Hanwell, told me if I wanted that position, uh, he would hold it open for me. And, and he did. And so I went back to work and uh, was in charge of dispatch uh, for a couple of years before leaving and coming here to the detention center. And and so, Ron, I'm doing a terrible job of host because I'm bouncing us all around. But I, I, I want to go back, if, if you don't mind, to that okay. sunrise. I want to go back to that sunrise. Okay. The sunrise you weren't supposed to see. I can't get it out of my mind. What was that like when you saw that sunrise? Did you wonder if you'd see another? Or did you feel like, okay, I've done this. I've, I'm, I'm going to be okay. Like, what was that sunrise like for you? Okay, yeah. Um, boy, no one's ever asked me that question before. But uh, it was a beautiful sunny morning. Wow. Uh, uh, in June, uh, this was 2002. And I could see you know, the light across the room outside getting uh, lighter and brighter. And uh, I, I still was not out of the woods yet uh, because that had only been just a few hours after the doctor had told me that. I still had, essentially what it came down to was it was about a 12 hour window. He said, if you live past 12 hours, you will live. Oh. Um, said, but there's you know, a high probability that your heart is not, it will stop before that 12 hours and we can't do anything about it. Um, so I'm just watching through the window, it getting lighter and brighter. And remember uh, looking at the clock and after it passed that 12th hour, I thought, okay, I think I'm going to make it. I think I'll be okay here. Um, and then I finally fell asleep. And then you finally fell asleep. Yes. Did you have any words for the doctor? I mean, he's just doing his job, but was, was there anything, any quips that were like, Hey, look at me, I'm here. <laughs> uh, you know, I regret that I, that I never did that. Uh, I did try to follow up uh, years later and he had retired and I was not able to track him down. So uh, yeah, one of my regrets in that for sure. How hard was it to stay awake? How, how hard was it during that 12 hours to stay dedicated and motivated uh, what, what was that 12 hours like for you? Um, That's grit, buddy. That is grit. <laughs> well, it was difficult. Uh, on one hand, it was really difficult because I was heavily medicated with morphine and, and some other drugs, uh, which wanted me to kind of to go to sleep, just the, you know, the yeah. power of the drug. Uh, at the same time, I was in such pain, even with the morphine, uh, that I was the pain also helped keep me awake. I was acutely aware of every breath I took and um, the way I've termed it before is, you know, breathing for all of us is an involuntary action. We don't give it a, a thought at all. We just do it. Uh, but for several days, uh, even under uh, pain medication, 
Uh, I was aware of every breath. And for me, it was uh, more voluntary in a way because it's like, I don't want to inhale again. I don't want to exhale again because it's too painful. So I would hold my breath for as long as I could and then inhale and exhale as shallowly as I could because it was just slightly less painful than a normal breath. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's how I how I dealt with making it through the night and staying awake. Well, I'm glad you did. And um, uh, I've never had to fight for my life. And um, I congratulate you on the grit that you showed to uh, to make it through because you have now you're there for your family, you're there for your your community, and you're now impacting others because of that 12 hour fight. And so it's more than just your next breath; you're you're impacting the world. And I think that that's what happens with with police officers and first responders. They want to make a difference. They want to make the next day better for the people they serve or the people they interact with. And uh, so tell me now. Let's jump then ahead again you're no longer able to do the things that you wanted to do in the police department. And you found this opportunity. Um, what's going through your mind there. You're not ready for a shift. You're not ready for retirement. You've fought and shown this grit to get here. And now you're in a brand new spot that you kind of didn't really ask for in the first place. What kind of things are you thinking about now? And how's that making you feel? Well, I loved doing what I did. Uh, as a uh, police officer for Medina PD. I loved every minute of it. Um, I didn't have a, I never had a bad day uh, my entire tenure there. And uh, so when things changed as they did for me, uh, I had to adjust to always being on station. I loved responding to calls and helping people. And, uh, and while I had no complaints being in charge of dispatch, as time went on, um, you know, I, I'm hearing the radio traffic officers responding and to, to think things that are going on and then they'll come on station and they'll talk about them. And I, I'm thinking, man, I would have loved to have been on that call. I, I, I would have done this maybe you know, this way or whatever. And um, then, uh, so again, after a couple of years of doing that, the then juvenile court judge, John Lone, who I knew very well, called me and told me that the assistant superintendent position was open here detention center and would I be interested? And I told him I would not. Uh, I, I still was happy at the police department, but he called me once a month uh, for the next eight months and asked me to consider it. And over that eight months, uh, I somehow, and I can't explain it, felt I think God wants me to leave the police department and, and go to the detention center. But I don't know why, because I don't care to work with kids, especially troubled youth, yeah. I'm being honest. Um, but after, finally, uh, with that prodding that I was feeling, and just again, the officers are coming in and they're talking about things they're doing out there, and I, and I missed it. Uh, I finally relented and I told Judge Loan, all right, I will uh, I'll take the position. Uh, and so that's how I ended up here. With what expectations and what trepidations? Because it's it's interesting. God wants you to be there. I heard that they didn't fill the position for eight months while they Correct. kept asking you, and Correct. and uh, and yet you didn't really have a. I mean, that's the way God's plans work. You know, he he says go here. No, no, so. no, and finally you go, and it works out. Um, right. Did you have expectations? Did you expect to fail? Did you expect to do great? Did you expect to make change? What were you just hoping to do in those first few? Uh, years or so on the new job? I wish I had a better answer for you than this, but uh, <laughs> what I, 
But what I was expecting was simply to enjoy uh, whatever I was going to end up doing here, to enjoy it as much as I did uh, at the police department. Uh, I had a lot to learn, but I have to give credit to the employees here. When I came here, um, I met with each of them individually. I told them, I don't know what I'm doing here. Uh, it would be foolish of me to purport, pretend that I do. And they were 100% supportive and, uh, and helped me a lot. So a lot of the credit goes to them. Uh, so again, a lot to learn, uh, but I love to learn. So that's not a, an issue for me. Uh, it seems to have worked out. Uh, I hope uh, I'm still here. Well, well, let's let's talk about that. And so the, the one of the great ways to be a great leader is to have a great team, right? If they, if they can lead themselves uh, and do their own thing while you provide the direction and things, then then that allows you to think big picture and and make real things, real change and real opportunities happen. And so let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about grit, the hard times, the struggles to get over the you change this program. And we've already talked about the fact that you've changed this program in a way that others still aren't necessarily willing to do. What were some of the hurdles and hardships and almost seemingly failures, uh, walls that you ran into in trying to change this program? Um, the, the biggest hurdle was, I, I've used this terminology before, I... I call the environment here when I started here a consequence-based environment. We have rules. The kids break those rules. They have consequences and, of course, negative consequences. And as I said earlier, I just kept thinking, I think we can do better than this. Um, so knowing, uh, believing that positive reinforcement is such a powerful motivator to change behavior for, for good, uh, I decided we were going to put together a behavioral level system uh, with incentives and rewards, and kids could earn these rewards through their good behavior. So having said that, I knew my biggest, most difficult hurdle would be the staff because the culture here was just so ingrained. This is the way it is. Sure. Yep. And uh, when we finally ended up implementing it, um, Surprise! Well, it sure surprised me. The uh, change in the behavior of the kids improved almost overnight. That that might sound like an exaggeration, but I gotta tell you, it's just it wasn't. Um, and people who from the outside of our building who come in, whether they're contract service providers or uh, volunteers who come in weekly or monthly, whatever. Uh, they were making it a point to stop by my office or call me or email me and tell me, wow, what an improvement in the uh, kids' behavior. So that was really encouraging. And, and so treating these kids like human beings and treating them like solid employees and setting expectations and rewards and opportunities. Let me let me push back a little bit because there are people listening now that are going, hey, man, they made their own bed. This is jail. Why are we being, why are we being soft? Why are we, you know, dangling carrots on sticks? What does behavior matter? Let's just, shouldn't these kids just do their time? Why are we being so soft? Now, I don't feel that way, of course, Ron, but I know that people think that. How, how do you respond to that? Uh, I'll go back to uh, something I said a few minutes ago. These kids are our future. So 
it makes no sense to me to just let them sit in a cell and not try to get their lives turned around. Yeah. Um, so between us and our court, again, we do everything we can reasonably do uh, to, to change their behavior. And when we, I, I guess, most of the time get a card or a letter uh, from a former youth who was here, uh, and often they're years later uh, saying, thank you for this, thank you for that. Uh, I'm married now, I have kids, I went to college or the military, whatever uh, the case may be, uh, that continues to encourage us. I, I share those with our staff. Um, so what it, when it comes down to it, when you get to know these kids, to hopefully more specifically answer your question, most of them would never be in a building such as ours if not for their home lives. Yeah. Uh, you know, the breakdown of the family, uh, the parents who have their own maybe addictions at times and issues. Uh, maybe their parents are in and out of jail or prison. Uh, most of the kids here have a lot of potential. Yeah. And most of them truly are not bad kids. They're making terrible decisions in most cases. Uh, a lot of them are really very cool. It's not uncommon for uh, staff to say, oh, I would love to take this one home. I'd love to take that one home uh, because they they would be a completely different person. Yeah. And, and I know your heart for folks and I know, and I know that, I know that God doesn't make junk. And so you're able to see through the fact that these are good people that have run across hard times, perhaps made poor decisions. A second chance is not out of the realm of, of what you're trying to provide these kids. Nor a third or fourth or fifth chance. Well uh, said. Often, oftentimes. Well said. So uh, I know you're not done. I know your heart. I know that it's not good enough yet. And you're going to keep trying to work on things. What, needs to happen in the future? What hurdles are coming that you can see? What opportunities are you going to try to take advantage of? Where will the grit come next as you try to improve this program even more? Okay. Well, um, there are there are folks in our country who don't think that buildings of our, such as ours should even exist. Oh. That, that, that kids, uh, minors should not be locked up for any reason. And there's a push for that uh, around the country. Uh, it's it's still more isolated uh, than prevalent, but it's growing. And what I have responded to people who have shared that belief with me is, do we want anyone in jail? Hopefully not. That said, some people are dangerous, even younger folks, sometimes minors. They're danger, either a danger to themselves uh, and or the community. While they're with us, they are well cared for. They're not staying up till three or four in the morning. They don't have a cell phone to do whatever they want to do with. They are not around, uh, at least hanging out with uh, other kids that they would outside of the building, their friends uh, who might continue to influence them in the wrong direction. They're e actually eating three meals a day. They're brushing their teeth three times a day. I could go on. They're well cared for her uh, for here, which is not the case most of the time when they're at home. Yeah. So it's actually beneficial for most of them to be here. And we have a lot of services that we provide uh, both internally and externally to help the kids. Ron, I, I, I wonder what you learned as a police officer. And this will be my final question before we start to wrap things up. What you learned in your 18 years as a police officer specifically that carried on to this. As a police officer, you react 
you respond, you take care of emergencies. Quite often, that's what you're forced to do. And now you're, you're implementing change and positive and, and, and new opportunities and, and growth. What did you learn from your career as a police officer that has allowed you to do these things today through the grit that you've shown? I think the biggest thing for me was, uh, well, I enjoy helping people. So as a yeah. police officer, when I would help people, uh, for, here was a challenge. This was a personal challenge for me. Whether it was one person, uh, two parties, multiple parties, my personal challenge was when I leave this scene, this situation, this problem, I want to leave with everyone here thinking they won, that life is back to normal as much as it can be for them, or life is good, life might be even better. Now that realistically isn't always the case, um, but I really learned through the years how much I enjoyed people um, being able to, I guess, change themselves in many cases just through the efforts of not only myself, but, you know, coworkers and, and others. And uh, so when you, you see that, for me, it's personally satisfying. And that just carries over with the kids here. Yeah. So you've changed culture and that's what so many different businesses have trouble with, with doing and trying to hire and trying to keep employees and keep people happy and things. And, 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 uh, and so you've taken it to a whole new level and, and, and for a, a group of people that wouldn't have gotten that care before. And so you've really made an impact. And I thank you for that. In, in case there are folks that want to know more about your program, or even just you as an individual, because you are inspiring, uh, in case anyone wanted to reach out to you, how, how might they do that? Is there an easy way in case they would? The best way is probably email. Mm -hmm. uh, and just go to our website uh, for my email address. Uh, and we also, as I mentioned, uh, have a monthly uh, electronic newsletter that they can request uh, that uh, we'll send them, uh, send to them. Uh, we have a Facebook page so I can see what's going on. Great. Thank you very much for sharing your story. I'm going to wrap up with you in a second. A quick word about Spire Marketing. We are the type of marketing organization that tries to help you tell your story. You just heard Ron's story and the story of a great future for many. Um, if you have a story like that in your business and you're trying to get it across so that other people understand what you're trying to do to impact others and to improve your business and improve your community, let us help. Uh, you can reach out to me. I'm Brian. You can find me at brian at spireed.com. I'm also on LinkedIn and you can catch me here on Dash of Grit once a week. Ron, I can't, I, I can't tell you enough how, how much I appreciate your vulnerability. Uh, you shared a story of fighting for your, your breath. Um, and that is a personal one. And, and I thank you for sharing it. I know that's not easy to do. Um, but people will be inspired by that because I, 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 I we, we all say things happen for a, a reason. I hope that a head on crash wasn't for a reason. But uh, you have turned that into something amazing and special for many, many people. And I appreciate the grit that you showed, and I'm glad you're here. Well, thank you again. Uh, you're very kind uh, with your comments. I appreciate that, and uh, that's encouraging. And uh, yeah, I hope others are encouraged as well. Ron Stoller, Medina County Juvenile Detention Center Superintendent. I'm glad you're there, Ron. I know the uh, the kids are, are glad you're there, and the world is better for it. And I appreciate your time spent with on, us on Dash of Grit. This is Dash of Grit, and uh, we can you can listen to us once a week. Uh, we have new episodes with great leaders 
uh, like Ron and others, you can find past episodes on the Dash of Grit website. And you can also listen to us anywhere you find your podcast. The success, the recipe for success always includes a dash of grit. So make sure you add yours, be gritty, and we'll see you next time. This is a dash of grit. Recipes for success from courageous leaders who overcome challenges and build great things. 